0: As was promised, today we move from a more general consideration of marriage to the more specific topic of adultery. And more specifically, Jesus' words on adultery. He takes the seventh commandment and he interprets it aright, according to the divine intention from, as we considered last week, the beginning. And in so doing, Jesus teaches us that adultery is not something that happens out there, but in here, in the heart. Jesus spiritualizes the commandment, directing it at the very underpinnings of the mind and the will. And His interpretation of the commandment, remember, is not a mishandling, but it's actually the commandment's true intention. It was never meant to address merely external actions alone, but inward motivations, the secret intents of the heart. As one commentator put it, he goes beneath the surface and forces us to examine our secret thoughts and scrutinize the unpleasant drives, passions, inward suggestions, and numerous unclean spirits that move us to malevolent behaviors. And so that one does not commit adultery is a good thing, but the divine command to holiness runs deeper. It's preoccupied with the heart because, as we all know, it is the heart, one's thoughts, emotions, and desires that compel their action. In the Scriptures, the heart is a catch-all term for the basic human functions. So one thinks with the heart. One feels with the heart. They have emotions with the heart. And one makes decisions with the heart. As the proverb says, watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. So the heart, quite simply, is who a person really is. And therefore the commandment is addressed there, to the heart. The divine intention is not merely to police borders, don't do this, don't do this, and don't do this, but complete and total renovation, that a person would be transformed in the very depth of their being, and that unrighteousness would be expunged from its very source, or rather that its very source would be expunged. And so as we hear this word then, Of course, Jesus' words about the commandment, they teach us to open up our hearts to the Spirit's transforming work in them. It is obviously not my words that we're gathered to hear. I have nothing of of good to say, but we're here to hear the divine word that is mysteriously manifested in and through and under human words. And so the Spirit's at work not to condemn or to damn, but to restore and to renew and to resurrect. And so we're not opening our hearts to a word that's spoken against us, but a word that's for us. I have come that they may have life, our Lord says, and have it abundantly. So this morning's message will proceed in a somewhat chronological order through the passage before us. First, we'll make a series of contrasts between love on the one hand, and lust on the other. And then we'll turn to more practical matters, tearing out eyes and cutting off arms. And then lastly, we'll end with a brief exhortation to love. So as we've noted, Jesus internalizes the commandment. It's not the actual act of adultery that's in view, but the internal disposition that gives rise to it. And that is lust. And quite obviously, lust is in opposition to love. It's not sexual desire that is condemned, but disordered and bent sexual desire. Under the dominion of love, sexual desire is good and honorable. It's not to be despised, and neither is it inherently wrong. But under the dominion of lust, Sexual desire is commandeered, and it's turned into something perverse and destructive. So, it's not a battle against sexual desire, but rather a battle for sexual desire. That it would be reclaimed from the enemy's dominion, and rightly ordered according to the divine will. And that's the first thing to note. Because sometimes our attitudes toward sexual desire can tend in an overly negative direction, that it's inherently wrong or inherently defiling and things like that. But gladly that's not the case. It's it's good and it's from above. It's a gift to be welcomed and enjoyed within the context of marriage. So one way to frame the struggle not against sexual desire, but for sexual desire, the struggle between healthy and disordered sexual desire is as a struggle between humanity's composite nature. Now, on the one hand, humans are creatures of the earth, in very many ways similar to the animals. And on the the other hand, humans are a creature of heaven, made in the divine likeness. Genesis 2, humans are flesh and spirit, their dust of the earth and their divine breath. And so our sexual desire can tend toward either one of those directions. A 14th century philosopher, um, Giovanni Pico, he imagines the Trinity's words to humans as he created them. And he says this, the Trinity speaking, we have made you a creature Neither of heaven, so not like the angels, not entirely like the angels, so neither of heaven nor of the earth, neither mortal nor immortal, in order that you, as the free and proud shaper of your own being, fashion yourself in the form you prefer. It will be in your power to descend to the lower, brutish forms of life. You will be able, through your own decision, to rise again to the superior orders whose life Is divine. So essentially, he says we can choose to either be conformed to our animal nature as the lower brutish forms of life, or we can be conformed to our heavenly nature, whose life is divine. In other words, humans are amphibious creatures with one foot in both realms, neither entirely in the heavenly, neither entirely in the earthly. And it's up to us, which we shall dwell in. Our sexual desire can be elevated and sanctified according to the Spirit, or it can be denigrated and profaned according to the flesh. And so as it tends toward things heavenly, healthy sexual desire is characterized by love. It's characterized by love. And as it tends toward things earthly, Disordered sexual desire is characterized by lust, and it's the latter that Jesus forbids. As all things in a disciple's life, sexual desire must proceed in love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in his famous book, The Cost of Discipleship, frames the whole matter this way. Our bond to Jesus Christ permits no desires without love. So the desire is good, but he doesn't permit it without love. And so there it is. It's quite simple, really. Sexual desire must originate and culminate in love. It's necessary then, and I think it'd be rather helpful to make a distinction between love and lust, Lust, a healthy and disordered sexual desire. Because in our age, when the two are so readily confused, um, even such a basic distinction cannot be presumed. So, the most obvious thing to say about lust, that which Jesus forbids, is that it objectifies. It assumes a reductionist view of another person. In fact, it doesn't even see the other person, it says instead it sees an object existing for its own gratification. Rather than seeing a person in their entirety, their attractiveness in its many forms, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and etc., it fixes entirely upon bodily attractiveness, and that in an entirely instrumental way. It does not appreciate their attractiveness to praise them, Something like we'd find in the Song of Songs between Solomon and his beloved. But instead, it fixes on them to have them for its own pleasure. C.S. Lewis, in his book, The Four Loves, he, he put it this way We use the most unfortunate idiom when we say of a lustful man prowling the streets that he wants a woman. Strictly speaking, the woman is just what he does not want, he wants a pleasure. For which a woman happens to be the necessary piece of apparatus, how much he cares about the woman as such may be gauged by his attitude to her in five minutes after fruition. One does not keep a carton after one has smoked the cigarettes. So disordered sexual desire wants not the woman, she's merely a carton, or more degradingly, the apparatus. What it wants, instead, is the pleasure that she can be used for. Lust values the person only to the extent that, it could, that they can satisfy its cravings. So it turns them, lust does, into um, a utility, a means to an end. And thus the reason that lust is condemned is because it effaces the divine image in the human person. It's dehumanizing. Ethicist Matthew Lee Anderson makes the point, reducing the human person to an instrument for our pleasure is to wish in our hearts that they simply did not exist as persons. So to instrumentalize them is to ultimately wish that they were not a person. So it denies their personhood and even wishes that their personhood wasn't so. So it is, in that sense, some would argue, a form of murder, a killing of that which is most precious in a person to have from them simply what it wants. And so lust objectifies on the one hand, and on the other, it's inherently self-seeking. It takes sexual desire, which is intended, according to God's plan, to lead one outside of themselves, and it turns it profoundly inward. Martin Luther once described sin in the Latin term homo incurvatus in se and it means man turned in upon himself. God created man relational in nature that his person that his personhood would be constituted in loving relationship with others. Sin turns that divine intention inside out. Man spirals deeper and deeper into himself, and further and further away from others. Now that doesn't necessarily mean he becomes a loner, but that whatever relationships he has, they're dominated by his own concerns. Luther's concept of man turned in upon himself really does lie at the heart of all sin. It's always a turn inward, away from God, away from others, and obviously so in relation to sexual desire. It commandeers sexual desire and makes it subservient to entirely selfish ends. You might put it this way love gives. What does Jesus say? Or at least Paul quotes him saying, It's more blessed to give or yeah, to give than to receive. Love love gives. Lust, on the other hand, takes. And so in the last contrast, or in the last statement about lust, our concern was how it dehumanizes the other person, and here our concern is how it dehumanizes the one who lusts. Sexual desire is uprooted from its natural home in a loving and secure relationship, and it becomes a hollow pleasure without relational intimacy, without that which the marriage context provides and thus the one who engages it, engages in it in this manner comes away more empty than before. In their lust they take and ironically their lust takes from them. The pleasure may sustain for a time but soon it gives way to profound loneliness. And moreover, extended over time, it matures from loneliness to an outright inability to exist in relationship. A person turns so inward that they can't even have intimacy. So it has this crippling effect, lust does. But sexual desire that has become beastly and inhumane can still be transformed by love. If lust corrupts one's vision, turning people into mere instruments and objects, then love restores one's vision and enables them to see another person in their true dignity. So we might say that lust sees through a person, beyond them, to get from them what it wants. Love actually sees the person as another person, worthy and honorable and sacred in their own right. And so as we're framing it, Love's vision, which transforms and renews, is both specific and general. Now, it's specific within the marriage covenant, covenant, rather. There, love's gaze is unique, not like any other relationship, and it's exclusive. It's not shared with any other relationship. It does not see others in the same way that it sees its spouse. And its gaze is marked by a rightly ordered sexual desire. Again, I want to read from Lewis. He says, in contrast, remember what we heard about the man who instrumentalizes the woman. Listen to this. He says, now love makes a man really want, not a woman, but one particular woman. In some mysterious but quite indisputable fashion, the lover desires the beloved herself, not the pleasure she can give. So it's not about, merely about one's pleasure, and it's really not about pleasure at all. It's about love, and pleasure is a byproduct of love. Without love, sexual desire is like every other desire. It's a fact about ourselves. I'm hungry, I'm thirsty, it's just another one of those things according to the animal dimension of our nature, the fleshly part of our nature. It's just, a, it's just a fact of life. But within love, sexual desire is transformed, and it becomes rather not about me and getting my needs, it becomes about the beloved. It still wants, but it is the person that it wants. So only hedged about by love is sexual desire acceptable to God. Because only governed by love does it actually value the person as a person without reducing them to an instrument. So the scripture teaches us that love is inherently directed outward. We know love by this, says the Apostle John, that he laid down his life for us. In other words, love is characterized by An outward concern for others. And not merely a concern, but action. Or as the Apostle Paul says, love is not arrogant and does not seek its own. It's outward facing. And it has the power to take a person who has been turned inward by sin. Who has been bent in upon themselves. And it has the power to redirect them outward the wider world beyond the narrow horizon of merely their own concerns. And so I spoke about marital sex last week in relation to procreation. Its purpose is to make babies and that the human race might accomplish its original vocation. Now we needed to highlight that very important biological element, but it also serves another purpose. And that is to unite man and woman in a one flesh union. The ancient word says, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and the woman can be united as one flesh because theirs is not merely a sexual union, but more accurately, a reunion, bringing together two sexually differentiated persons, one made from the other and both made for the other. And of course there are various ways that people come together. We have sports leagues, we have book clubs, we have labor unions, and they all to their in their own way unite people. But again, not as marital sex does, and really sexual relation in general. The body element, the bodily element is crucial in marriage again we're united to one another in various ways emotionally through our personalities and experiences mentally through our educational pursuits and our temperaments there's there's a union a sharing that goes on there spiritually through our common union with the spirit and ideally there shouldn't be a restriction upon the common, upon these unions that we share with one another. They should be enjoyed as a gift of creation. Yet, for all those other unions, we do not unite bodily. We give ourselves to each other in all sorts of ways, each meaningful and profound, but the bodily union is restricted to marriage, and thus it's the bodily union that is the capstone upon all other unions. Now, in marriage, emotional and mental and spiritual union culminates in bodily union. And that's, of course, why adultery is so devastating. One can share a car ride or a meal or a conversation with another person, but if you share your body, it will implode your marriage. And so we come, at least partially, to an understanding of what marital sex is for. It's about mutual self-giving. It's about a union of bodily love. And so whereas lust, even within the marriage covenant, turns bodily union into a self-seeking exercise, fundamentally about one's own pleasure, love redeems bodily union into a self-giving exercise, not primarily about taking from the other, but giving oneself to them. And as we've said, that simply is what love is. Now, the principal passage here is the great incarnation hymn in Philippians 2. Verses 5 and 7, the Apostle Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So Christ's descent into the flesh is captured in a few words. He emptied himself, and therein love is exemplified. Lust's aim is to gather to itself, to make itself full, however means necessary. Love's aim is to empty itself, to pour out into others. And of course, within the marriage covenant and marital sexual relationships, that is as true there as anywhere else. And so, although the sexual element is not present elsewhere in other relationships, we do need to sanctify our vision toward others in love. Jesus forbids us from looking with lust, and the point is, only love can remove lust from one's vision. It would be wrong to take the statement about plucking out one's eyes and cutting off one's arm, if necessary, to isolate themselves from every encounter with the opposite sex. The object isn't sin management, but transformation. And so when love, and really when only love is introduced into a person's vision, can it keep them from casting that lustful gaze on another. It's not about policing the borders, it's about transforming the heart. So it seems then, though not in the unique manner that love sees its beloved, that love is necessary to see another person in their complete dignity created in the image of God. When love enters our vision, it keeps us from objectifying or trivializing another person. It values them. It sees them created in the image of God. And so we're moving from lust as one's basic disposition to the opposite sex to the sanctified disposition of love. And I want also to have a word here uh, to say something also about Uh, those who are single. And I'm sure many are thinking, well, what does this have to do with me? Because my approach here has been to reorient love um, within the marriage covenant principally, contrasting disordered and ordered sexual desire. But what about those who are outside that covenant? Now, first, and this is really the only thing I want to say, is that sexual relations are important, obviously restricted to the marriage covenant, but... They're not everything. Now, this may affect you depending on what generation you find yourself in to a varying degree. But human sexuality, and I'm sure maybe you have noticed this, has changed from something that humans do to something that identifies them as such. So it's changed from something that humans do to something that identifies them as such. One's sexual orientation crowds out other identity markers, church, family, nationality, ethnicity, and it totalizes the person. In other words, who one is is determined nowadays by their sexual orientation. It's the deepest marker of their individuality and their personhood. And so it takes on the notion that it's the most important thing. And as such, there's a temptation, particularly for believers, to feel somehow less a person because their sexuality is not as prominent as it would be with others or that it's confined to the marriage covenant. There's an incredible pressure exercised upon, I think, typically the younger generations in this regard to do as everyone else does and to find their identity in their sexuality, which inevitably leads them Away from the church's ethics. And so, in response to the sexual identity craze, the church the church happily points to Jesus Christ, a man for the whole of his life who was celibate. So in all our thoughts about human sexuality's role and purpose in our lives, we cannot fail to consider that one most obvious thing. Jesus was single. In his book, Mere Sexuality, Todd Wilson says the following. One of the most important truths we should reject on this, or we should reflect on, is this. No one was more fully or sexually contented than Jesus. Yet Jesus never engaged in a single sexual act. Think about it. Jesus never enjoyed the pleasures of sex, an erotic touch, or a lingering kiss. And he never indulged in sexual fantasy or lust of the kind he roundly condemns. And so Jesus' celibate life deconstructs our cultural myth. In His example, we learn that sexual activity is not really in any way central to human flourishing or to personal identity and fulfillment. And so truly, in our over-sexualized culture, it's almost unthinkable that someone could live a celibate life and experience the fullness of what it means to be human. Again, Todd Wilson, he says, so deep-seated is this belief that most people today think that to deny yourself sexually is to undermine your own humanity. Right? The two notions of being a person and my sexual identity are so conflated that to just say, I'm not going to engage in that, I'm not going to do this outside of marriage, then it would be to deny your very personhood. And again, against that notion, the church gladly proclaims that sexual activity is not essential to being a human. It does not define a person's identity, it is a secondary and probably even a lesser concern than that. To be a human is not to be sexually active, but to do God's will. And it's freeing to come to that realization suddenly the church's sexual ethic doesn't seem like a terrible burden whether it be abstinence till marriage or celibacy till death or any variation in between it's hardly a death sentence sexuality is not the end all be all that we have made it to be and there's a relief there so now turning things and coming to the latter half of our message here nearing the end set against this backdrop Our Lord's words about tearing out eyes and cutting off hands can be properly understood or rather accepted in their severity. In ancient times, for whatever reason, the right eye and the right hand were considered more valuable than their lefty counterparts. So the statement is clearly not about maiming ourselves, but more so about the danger of lusts and the value of love. It's worth the cost, be it our hand or our eye or whatever else. And so Jesus' point is ultimately something like this. One should root out and sever those temptations that arouse their otherwise dormant lust and take great pains to abide in love. Or, in a more Pauline vernacular, Romans chapter 6, verses 12 and 13. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness. So we've been talking a lot about the body lately. And what this passage tells us is that one's body is not their own. Our 1 Corinthians 6, we've been bought at a price. As the Apostle Paul says there, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And as such, its members, eyes and hands and everything else, are to be used not as instruments of unrighteousness, but righteousness. Remember, when the triune God claimed us in baptism, our entire bodies went under the water all its members, every single one of them, belongs to Him. And so practically, what are we to do here? And I want to offer three things, ranging from the general to the specific, and these can apply to anybody. Maybe not to yourself personally, but maybe to your children, maybe to your grandchildren, whatever. The object here is to learn the difference between lust and love, and to train ourselves in the latter. Therefore, First, consider something like a digital fast. Ours, sadly, is a pornographic age, and its rule is enforced through digital media. We cannot underestimate the formative influence that social media platforms, streaming services, um, the internet in general, have upon our imaginations, And again, I'm not talking about pornography specifically, but the images that we take in on a daily basis, just what's normal to view. And in those images, and and, and remember, this is becoming a constant thing. It's not just, I look at my phone for an hour, it's, I look at my phone for three hours and then I watch, you know, two hours of Netflix and so on and so forth. All that influence changes the way we see things. And so we're trained, for better or for worse, and more often, always for the worse, what human, we're trained rather, what human sexuality is and how to approach it. We're we're being taught, whether that be our kids or whatever. So lust, in this sense, is programmed into our brains. And so it'd be a worthwhile thing for every family and individual to Limit their digital intake. That may seem like plucking out an eye, but it's worth it. It's obviously going to look different according to every situation, but maybe it means imposing limits on media usage. Maybe it means deleting certain apps and streaming platforms altogether. Or maybe it means something like disconnecting and retreating into nature from time to time to set things right. And again, a, a word to parents and, and grandparents. If you haven't grown up in the digital age, it's kind of harder to understand this, but I don't think it's possible to cultivate a healthy approach to human sexual desire in this context without a loving oversight and uh, discipline. It may be uncomfortable, it may be something that you've never done before entering into that area. But do take interest in this area for the sake of your children or grandchildren. And of course, parents are not alone in this. In many cases, the parents prying into these matters will do more harm than good. And that is where a wise brother or sister in the church can come in, right? Their outside perspective, um, they may be better positioned to help in a situation like this. But... Just generally, put it on your radar and think about it. And not merely parents, but ourselves too. And of course, this is a point as basic as anything, but it's simply to seek an accountability partner if need be. Rarely, if ever, can lust be overcome on one's own. And there's no shame here. Every last one of us is a sinner. Every one of us has been tempted, as you are, and no one will cast judgment, and no one will condemn. And so don't be afraid to seek out a wise brother or sister in these matters, and to get their help. Listen to them, and do whatever it is that they counsel you. And lastly, um, in the Apostles' words, Philippians 4.8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence And if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. So put love and its derivatives, honor, purity, excellence, at the forefront of your hearts and minds. Quite simply, you might summarize everything the Apostle is saying here by just saying, be thankful. I do find that praise and thanksgiving are the first and most important defense against the flesh. You know, we're trying to keep ourselves from turning inward. And the only way, or rather the first way to keep ourselves from turning inward is to turn outward in thanksgiving and to recognize all the good things that the Lord has done, is doing, and will do for us. And so a heart that is occupied with such things develops something of a barrier against lust and the like. So let's draw this to a close. The Scriptures never command us to cease from a sinful action without also putting on a righteous action. The one is replaced by the other. Now, Jesus' words, isolated from their righteous contents, namely love, make them almost unworkable in our lives. One cannot scrub out every last wayward thought from their minds without replacing those thoughts with true ones. And just so, one cannot escape lust without pursuing love. Flee from youthful lusts, the Apostle Paul tells his protege Timothy. And pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And so the commandment is not really about eliminating adultery, though it is. It's more about becoming a particular kind of person. One made steadfast in love. It bids us to flee lust, but more importantly, to pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. Its negative content is replaced by a positive and compelling vision. The person that our gracious God has made us, promised to make us into. Gilbert Miliander, he puts it this way, whatever twists and turns of life, Whatever other possible sexual partners may come along, God is at work in the institution of marriage to shape and form us into the people He promises we will be, people who, will, who shall not commit adultery because their hearts have been made steadfast in love. And so that vision, men and women made steadfast in love, is worth pursuing. And anyone marked by sexual sin desires to be such a person implicitly. It's because it stamps them, sexual sin does, deep down as people who lack integrity, those who are determined by shame and guilt. And therefore this vision, integrity, love, nobility, it touches them in their innermost person. And the truth is, and we'll end here, is that this is not an unattainable dream, but a promise in Christ Jesus, the Amen. Our sexual, one's sexual sin wants to keep them down, too wounded by guilt and shame to strive after this vision. But don't forget the trustworthy statement deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. He did not die on the cross for imaginary sins but his heart's blood was spilt to wash out deep crimson stains. So, there remains mercy for you, infinite and exhaustible mercy. Pursue righteousness, love, faith, and peace.